Chapter 29 The Missing Witness Mr. Raymond, the voice was low and searching. It reached me in my dreams, waked me, and caused me to look up. Morning had begun to break, and by its light I saw, standing in the open door leading into the dining room, the forlorn figure of the tramp who had been admitted into the house the night before. Angry and perplexed, I was about to bid her be gone when, to my great surprise, she pulled out a red handkerchief from her pocket, and I recognized Q. Read that, said he, hastily advancing and putting a slip of paper into my hand, and without another word or look left the room, closing the door behind him. Rising in considerable agitation, I took it to the window, and by the rapidly increasing light succeeded in making out the rudely scrawled lines as follows. She is here, I have seen her, in the room marked with a cross in the accompanying plan. Wait till eight o'clock, then go up. I will contrive some means of getting Mrs. Belden out of the house. Sketched below this was the following plan of the upper floor. Hannah, then, was in the small back room over the dining room, and I had not been deceived in thinking I had heard steps overhead the evening before. Greatly relieved, and yet at the same time much moved at the near prospect of being brought face to face with one who we had every reason to believe was acquainted with the dreadful secret involved in the Leavenworth murder, I lay down once more and endeavored to catch another hour's rest. But I soon gave up the effort in despair and contented myself with listening to the sounds of awakening life, which now began to make themselves heard in the house and neighborhood. As Q had closed the door after him, I could only faintly hear Mrs. Belden when she came downstairs. But the short, surprised exclamation which she uttered upon reaching the kitchen and finding the tramp gone and the back door wide open came plainly enough to my ears, and for a moment I was not sure but that Q had made a mistake in thus leaving so unceremoniously. But he had not studied Mrs. Belden's character in vain. As she came in the course of her preparations for breakfast into the room adjoining mine, I could hear her murmur to herself, "'Poor thing! She has lived so long in the fields and at the roadside she finds it unnatural to be cooped up in the house all night.' the trial of that breakfast, the effort to eat and appear unconcerned, to chat and make no mistake. May I never be called upon to go through such another. But at last it was over, and I was left free to await in my own room the time for the dreaded, though much to be desired, interview. Slowly the minutes passed. Eight o'clock struck, when, just as the last vibration ceased, there came a loud knock at the back door, and a little boy burst into the kitchen, crying at the top of his voice, "'Papa's got a fit. Oh, Mrs. Belden, Papa's got a fit. Do come.' Rising, as was natural, I hastened towards the kitchen, meeting Mrs. Belden's anxious face in the doorway. "'A poor woodchopper down the street has fallen in a fit,' she said. "'Will you please watch over the house while I see what I can do for him?' I won't be absent any longer than I can help. And almost without waiting for my reply, she caught up a shawl, 
threw it over her head, and followed the urchin, who was in a state of great excitement, out into the street. Instantly, the silence of death seemed to fill the house, and a dread, the greatest I have ever experienced, settled upon me. To leave the kitchen, go up those stairs, and confront that girl seemed for the moment beyond my power. But once on the stair, I found myself relieved from the especial dread which had overwhelmed me, and possessed, instead, of a sort of combative curiosity that led me to throw open the door, which I saw at the top with a certain fierceness, new to my nature, and not altogether suitable, perhaps, to the occasion. I found myself in a large bedroom, evidently the one occupied by Mrs. Belden the night before, barely stopping to note certain evidences of her having passed a restless night, I passed on to the door leading into the room marked with a cross in the plan drawn for me by Q. It was a rough affair, made of pine boards rudely painted. Pausing before it, I listened. All was still. Raising the latch, I endeavored to enter. The door was locked. Pausing again, I bent my ear to the keyhole, not a sound came from within. The grave itself could not have been stiller. Awestruck and irresolute, I looked about me and questioned what I had best do. Suddenly, I remembered that, in the plan Q had given me, I had seen intimation of another door leading into the same room from the one on the opposite side of the hall. Going hastily around to it, I tried it with my hand, but it was as fast as the other. Convinced at last that nothing was left me but force, I spoke for the first time, and calling the girl by name, commanded her to open the door. Receiving no response, I said aloud, with an accent of severity, "'Hannah Chester, you are discovered. If you do not open the door, we shall be obliged to break it down. Save us the trouble, then, and open immediately.' Still no reply. Going back a step, I threw my whole weight against the door, it creaked ominously, but still resisted. Stopping only long enough to be sure no movement had taken place within, I pressed against it once more, this time with all my strength, when it flew from its hinges and I fell forward into a room so stifling, chill and dark that I paused for a moment to collect my scattered senses before venturing to look around me. It was well I did so, in another moment, the pallor and fixity of the pretty Irish face staring upon me from amidst the tumbled clothes of a bed drawn up against the wall at my side struck me with so death-like a chill that, had it not been for that one instant of preparation, I should have been seriously dismayed. As it was, I could not prevent a feeling of sickly apprehension from seizing me as I turned towards the silent figure stretched so near and observed with what marble-like repose it lay beneath the patchwork quilt drawn across it, asking myself if sleep could be indeed so like death in its appearance. For that it was a sleeping woman I beheld, I did not seriously doubt. There were too many evidences of careless life in the room for any other inference. The clothes, left just as she had stepped from them in a circle on the floor, the liberal plate of food placed in waiting for her on the chair by the door, food amongst which I recognized, even in this casual glance, 
the same dish which we had had for breakfast. All and everything in the room spoke of robust life and reckless belief in the morrow. And yet, so white was the brow turned up to the bare beams of the unfinished wall above her, so glassy the look of the half-opened eyes, so motionless the arm lying half under, half over, the edge of the coverlid, that it was impossible not to shrink from contact with a creature so sunk in unconsciousness. But contact seemed to be necessary. Any cry which I could raise at that moment would be ineffectual enough to pierce those dull ears. Nerving myself, therefore, I stooped and lifted the hand which lay with its tell-tale scar mockingly uppermost, intending to speak, call, do something, anything, to arouse her. But at the first touch of her hand on mine, an unspeakable horror thrilled me. It was not only icy cold, but stiff. Dropping it in my agitation, I started back and again surveyed the face. Great God, when did life ever look like that? What sleep ever wore such pallid hues, such accusing fixedness? Bending once more, I listened at the lips. Not a breath, not a stir. Shocked to the core of my being, I made one final effort. Tearing down the clothes, I laid my hand upon her heart. It was pulseless as stone. Chapter 30 Burned Paper I do not think I called immediately for help. The awful shock of this discovery, coming as it did at the very moment life and hope were strongest within me, the sudden downfall which it brought of all the plans based upon this woman's expected testimony, and worst of all, the dread coincidence between this sudden death and the exigency in which the guilty party, whoever it was, was supposed to be at that hour, were much too appalling for an instant action. I could only stand and stare at the quiet face before me, smiling in its peaceful rest as if death were pleasanter than we think, and marvel over the providence which had brought us renewed fear instead of relief, complication instead of enlightenment, disappointment instead of realization. For, eloquent as is death, even on the faces of those unknown and unloved by us, the causes and consequences of this one were much too important to allow the mind to dwell upon the pathos of the scene itself. Hannah, the girl, was lost in Hannah, the witness. But gradually, as I gazed, the look of expectation which I perceived hovering about the wistful mouth and half-open lids attracted me, and I bent above her with a more personal interest, asking myself if she were quite dead and whether or not immediate medical assistance would be of any avail. But the more closely I looked, the more certain I became that she had been dead for some hours, and the dismay occasioned by this thought, taken with the regrets which I must ever feel, that I had not adopted the bold course the evening before, and by forcing my way to the hiding-place of this poor creature interrupted, if not prevented, the consummation of her fate, startled me into a realization of my present situation. And leaving her side, I went into the next room, threw up the window, and fastened to the blind the red handkerchief which I had taken the precaution to bring with me. Instantly, a young man, 
whom I was fain to believe Q, though he bore not the least resemblance, either in dress or facial expression, to any renderings of that youth which I had yet seen, emerge from the tinsmith's house and approach the one I was in. Observing him cast a hurried glance in my direction, I crossed the floor and stood awaiting him at the head of the stairs. Well, he whispered, upon entering the house and meeting my glance from below, have you seen her? Yes, I returned bitterly. I have seen her. He hurriedly mounted to my side. And she has confessed? No, I have had no talk with her. Then, as I perceived him growing alarmed at my voice and manner, I drew him into Mrs. Belden's room and hastily inquired, "'What did you mean this morning "'when you informed me you had seen this girl, "'that she was in a certain room where I might find her?' "'What I said. "'You have, then, been to her room?' "'No, I have only been on the outside of it. "'Seeing a light, I crawled up on to the ledge "'of the slanting roof last night, "'while both you and Mrs. Belden were out, "'and looking through the window, "'saw her moving round the room.' He must have observed my countenance change, for he stopped. "'What is to pay?' he cried. I could restrain myself no longer. "'Come,' I said, "'and see for yourself.' And leading him to the little room I had just left, I pointed to the silent form lying within. "'You told me I should find Hannah here, but you did not tell me I should find her in this condition.' "'Great heaven!' he cried with a start. "'Not dead!' "'Yes,' I said, "'dead.' "'It seemed as if he could not realize it. "'But it is impossible,' he returned. "'She's in a heavy sleep, has taken a narcotic. "'It is not sleep,' I said, "'or if it is, she will never wake. "'Look!' "'And taking the hand once more in mine, "'I let it fall in its stone weight upon the bed. "'The sight seemed to convince him. "'Calming down, he stood gazing at her "'with a very strange expression upon his face. "'Suddenly he moved "'and began quietly turning over the clothes "'that were lying on the floor. "'What are you doing?' I asked. "'What are you looking for?' "'I am looking for the bit of paper "'from which I saw her take "'what I supposed to be a dose of medicine last night. "'Oh, here it is,' he cried, "'lifting a morsel of paper "'that lying on the floor under the edge of the bed "'had hitherto escaped his notice.' "'Let me see,' I anxiously exclaimed. "'He handed me the paper, "'on the inner surface of which "'I could dimly discern "'the traces of an impalpable white powder. "'This is important,' I declared, "'carefully folding the paper together. "'If there is enough of this powder remaining "'to show that the contents of this paper were poisonous, "'the manner and means of the girl's death "'are accounted for, "'and a case of deliberate suicide made evident.' "'I am not so sure of that,' he retorted. "'If I am any judge of countenances, "'and I rather flatter myself I am, "'this girl had no more idea she was taking poison than I had. "'She looked not only bright but gay, "'and when she tipped up the paper, "'a smile of almost silly triumph crossed her face. "'If Mrs. Belden gave her that dose to take, "'telling her it was medicine, "'that is something which yet remains to be learned. "'Also, "'whether the dose, as you call it, was poisonous or not. "'It may be she died of heart disease.' "'He simply shrugged his shoulders, "'and pointed first at the plate of breakfast left on the chair, "'and secondly at the broken-down door. "'Yes,' I said, answering his look. 
Mrs. Belden has been in here this morning, and Mrs. Belden locked the door when she went out. But that proves nothing beyond her belief in the girl's hearty condition. A belief which that white face on its tumbled pillow did not seem to shake. Perhaps in her haste she may not have looked at the girl, but have set the dishes down without more than a casual glance in her direction. I don't want to suspect anything wrong, but it is such a coincidence. This was touching me on a sore point, and I stepped back. Well, said I, there is no use in our standing here busying ourselves with conjectures. There is too much to be done. Come. And I moved hurriedly towards the door. What are you going to do? he asked. Have you forgotten this is but an episode in the one great mystery we are sent here to unravel? If this girl has come to her death by some foul play, it is our business to find it out. That must be left for the coroner. It is now passed out of our hands. I know, but we can at least take full note of the room and everything in it before throwing the affair into the hands of strangers. Mr. Grice will expect that much of us, I am sure. I have looked at the room. The whole is photographed on my mind. I am only afraid I can never forget it. And the body? Have you noticed its position, the lay of the bedclothes around it, the lack there is of all signs of struggle or fear, the repose of the countenance, the easy fall of the hands? Yes, yes, don't make me look at it any more. Then the clothes hanging on the wall, rapidly pointing out each object as he spoke, do you see? A calico dress, a shawl, not the one in which she was believed to have run away, but an old black one, probably belonging to Mrs. Belden. Then this chest, opening it, containing a few underclothes marked, let us see, ah, with the name of the lady of the house, but smaller than any she ever wore, made for Hannah, you observe, and marked with her own name to prevent suspicion. And then these other clothes lying on the floor, all new, all marked in the same way. Then this, hello, look here, he suddenly cried, Going over to where he stood, I stooped down when a washbowl half full of burned paper met my eye. I saw her bending over something in this corner and could not think what it was. Can it be she is a suicide after all? She has evidently destroyed something here which she didn't wish anyone to see. I do not know, I said. I could almost hope so. Not a scrap, not a morsel left to show what it was. How unfortunate. "'Mrs. Belden must solve this riddle,' I cried. "'Mrs. Belden must solve the whole riddle,' he replied. "'The secret of the Leavenworth murder hangs upon it.' "'Then, with a lingering look towards the mass of burned paper, "'who knows but what that was a confession?' "'The conjecture seemed only too probable. "'Whatever it was,' said I, "'it is now ashes, "'and we've got to accept the fact and make the best of it.' "'Yes.' "'said he with a deep sigh, that's so. "'But Mr. Grice will never forgive me for it, never. "'He will say I ought to have known it was a suspicious circumstance "'for her to take a dose of medicine "'at the very moment detection stood at her back. "'But she did not know that. "'She did not see you. "'We don't know what she saw, nor what Mrs. Belden saw. "'Women are a mystery, and though I flatter myself that ordinarily... I am a match for the keenest bit of female flesh that ever walked. I must say that in this case, 
I feel myself thoroughly and shamefully worsted. Well, well, I said, the end has not come yet. Who knows what a talk with Mrs. Belden will bring out? And, by the way, she will be coming back soon, and I must be ready to meet her. Everything depends upon finding out, if I can, whether she is aware of this tragedy or not. It is just possible she knows nothing about it. And hurrying him from the room, I pulled the door to behind me and led the way downstairs. Now, said I, there is one thing you must attend to at once. A telegram must be sent Mr. Grice, acquainting him with this unlooked-for occurrence. All right, sir, and Q started for the door. Wait one moment, said I. I may not have another opportunity to mention it. Mrs. Belden received two letters from the postmaster yesterday, one in a large and one in a small envelope. If you could find out where they were postmarked, Q put his hand in his pocket. I think I will not have to go far to find out where one of them came from. Good George, I have lost it. And before I knew it, he had returned upstairs. That moment, I heard the gate click. Phoebe Reads a Mystery is recorded in the studios of North Carolina Public Radio, WUNC.